This morning we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 22 and we're going to finish the remainder of chapter 3 together. I want to say up front just to kind of give you a heads up the last verse of the chapter, verse 36, uh, I'm not going to give as much commentary on today just simply because it's sort of a summarization verse of the first 21 verses that we've already looked at together and we sort of referenced it as a part of our study uh, through those things. So just uh, for sake of awareness, if you want to get a little more commentary on the truth that's really summarized there in verse 36. Uh, the first 21 verses really gave us that and we covered it kind of in depth at that time. So if we could, let's stand together as we do out of respect for the word of God as we read our portion of scripture this morning. It says in verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he remained with them and baptized John also was baptizing Anon near Salim because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of the John's disciples and the Jews about purification and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is above the earth, he who is of the earth, excuse me, is earthly and speaks of the earth, and he who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask that you just meet us in the way that we have need this morning. Lord, we recognize the frailty of our bodies and Lord, we got up and, and drugged them to this place with less than an hour's sleep of normal. So we just pray, quicken our bodies, that our mortal body would be strong and able to be alert and attentive to hear what the voice of your Holy Spirit would want to say to us as we're here to worship you and your son this morning. So Lord, strengthen us. We pray, make us alert. We ask that your Holy Spirit would prepare each one of us to expect that there is something that you want to say to us and that you'd give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Bless your word this morning, we ask, and speak to us by your spirit's ministry. In Jesus' wonderful name we ask, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, could it be possible that there is maybe anything or even anyone in your life that gets more attention or is before or even above Jesus. I think all of us at times can wrestle with that to some extent and if so, and that's the case, that anything or anyone begins to be before or above Jesus, it's important to realize that that's not God's design and that's not God's order. 
And because of that, sometimes God will even address that. Because of who Jesus is, he should be, as we even read as a part of our verses this morning, the one who is above all. Jesus should be above all else. And to the degree that that is true in our personal experience, our life will honestly be the most fulfilled and our life will be the most satisfied and will be the most fruitful according to what God intends for it to be. And this passage speaks to us really of the exaltation or the promotion of Jesus. That was what was on John the Baptist's heart, that Jesus would be lifted above all and how proper and fitting that is. Look with me in verse 22 as we work our way through it. It tells us that after these things, that is that conversation that Jesus had had with Nicodemus we covered in great depth, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them, it says, and baptized. So notice, Jesus' public ministry is now beginning to take place, and part of people beginning to choose to follow Jesus, we read here, was that those who are beginning to choose to follow Jesus are participating in a water baptism to identify that commitment outwardly. Now, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 actually tell us that Jesus himself was not the one conducting the baptisms, but he actually was allowing his disciples as his representatives to actually perform that ministry. It says that they're doing it here in the area of Judea, which is basically a reference to southern Israel. Israel is kind of broken into three kind of main quadrants. You have Judea, Samaria, and Galilee as you go from south to the north. So this would kind of be like saying this was happening in South Jersey, the region of South Jersey. This is the southern part of Israel, and there they are, and it says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. Now, water baptism, understand, was a practice that had already been in existence even prior to this time when we find Jesus himself beginning to baptize. It was a spiritual practice of identifying what you believed and what you had chosen to follow. And here's the reason why, very simply. I can't see inwardly into your heart. You can't see inwardly into my heart or my mind to know what I believe or what's going on in the inside. So water baptism was basically a process, a practice of announcing what you believed. It was a way of publicly indicating what was happening or had happened inside of your heart. It was your announcement of what you perhaps were wanting to be a disciple of, that you were a follower or a learner of a particular cause or a particular leader or rabbi. It was that outward public announcement of the inward decision or experience that had already happened inside of your heart. And it's for that reason that as Christians, water baptism is one of the two ordinances that Jesus has left for his church, for you and I as Christians, his followers, to observe. One of them being communion, which we celebrated this last Wednesday evening, where the church collectively shares together the the Lord's Supper. And that is one of the things that we are told to do out of obedience. It's not an option. Jesus said this, do. He doesn't say if you feel like doing it. He said, do it. It's a part of our obedience to Jesus that we periodically celebrate communion with the family of God for the purposes Christ intended for. And individually, the thing that we've been given to do is to observe the Lord's baptism in the sense of water baptism to identify outwardly our union with Christ or our choice to follow Jesus. That is the other thing that we are commissioned to do. So the Bible commands us to believe for salvation 
But then it also tells us afterwards to be baptized for identification of what we've believed and experienced inside of our heart. So as we baptize someone in water, as they go under the water and they come back out of the water, it's a picture of how their life is, is joined with Christ. The, the old man is dead and buried with Jesus and his death. And as you raise them up out of the water, it's a picture of they're a new person now. It's a new life. That old me is dead. And as we put the person down under the water, some we have to put there a little longer and shake it all out of me. You know, some people tell you in advance, hold me under a little bit longer. Longer, you know, make sure it's all that you know it's a picture of the old life is dead and raise me up I'm a new person now I want to be a new person in Christ as a follower of him so we find water baptism was practiced in the early church you read about it in the book of Acts it's then restated and taught about in the epistles the New Testament letters and as a follower of Jesus it's our opportunity to sort of outwardly publicly unashamedly say like Paul said with his words I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live but Christ now lives in me and the life I now choose to live I live by faith in the Son of God so as a Christian it's a step of obedience that we all should take we must take for Jesus it's our personal way to publicly exalt Jesus as an individual to say in a way that we want to honor him and to state to others and everyone watching that I am not ashamed to associate with Jesus. I'm his follower and I want that to be clear and to be evidence. The same way how people get married publicly. My wife would not have been real thrilled if when I said, hey, can we get married? But could we do it secretly? I mean, let's just never tell anyone. Don't invite anyone to the ceremony and, and, and please don't wear a ring. I want to be married, but don't let anybody know. That wouldn't go over rule. In the same way, as Christians, Jesus says, this is your way to publicly announce to publicly identify with me as your follower. And so here we see they were being baptized. Our text goes on to say, Now John also, that is John the Baptist, was baptizing in Anon near Salim. And we're not completely certain where that is geographically. It says, Because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized for John, at this point, notice, had not yet been thrown into prison. So prior to John's imprisonment, for remember when he had rebuked Herod, because of his immoral relationship with a woman who was not his wife. Prior to that time, John the Baptist continued baptizing for a brief time, even after Jesus had been publicly revealed and his ministry had begun. There was sort of a, a little bit of an overlap between John the Baptist's ministry and baptism coming to a close and the onset or the beginning of Jesus' public ministry now as the Messiah and the Savior. Remember, John's baptism was for those who wanted to identify with what John had been preaching as the one who came before Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist came on the scene before Christ. He was sent by God and he began to tell people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And prepare yourself for there's one coming who's mightier than I who will baptize you with the spirit and with fire. And John was telling people to get ready for the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And those who believed what John was preaching and wanted to repent of their sin and ready themselves for this coming Savior, this coming Messiah, the way that they identified with that was by submitting to the water baptism that John the Baptist was performing. Notice our text there in verse 23 tells us interestingly that the location and again we don't know geographically the location but more than that look at verse 23 it shows us there the reason that john and his disciples chose that location to do their water baptism look at it there it says it's deeply spiritual because there was much water there 
I look at that and I go, wow, that's pretty practical. You can see John saying, okay, we, we need to transition and do some more water baptisms. And where, where, do, you, where, do, you think, where do you think God's leading, John? Well, I don't know. I, I sense, how about over there? Why over there? Well, there's a lot of water. That would work pretty well. That would happen pretty efficient. I don't think this puddle is going to be deep enough. But I think over there, there's, there's much water over there. There's plenty of resources to do what we practically need to do, which is to dunk people in the water and to baptize them. Now, I look at this and things like this that the Holy Spirit records for us in the Bible, and I think, wow, thanks for that example, because that's what I call spiritually practical. That's just simple wisdom. Oftentimes, listen, ladies and gentlemen, the things of ministry and oftentimes the ways and the leading of God in our lives as well, quite honestly, can simply be very practical. I would encourage you this morning, be careful not to you know, hyper-spiritualize things too much. As Christians, I think sometimes we have to you know, use balance in that. Don't overlook practical things in your way of processing decisions and deciding. Realize that God uses practicality. Oftentimes, God can and does work in very supernaturally natural ways. Supernaturally natural ways. Do you want to know how I met my wife, the bride, the woman that God chose for me? It wasn't by praying and having a vision of some woman in a particular state that I was to, to fly to that spot and, and go to that coffee shop. I went to a barbecue, and she was there. And I went, she's a Christian, and she's hot. The rest was history. But it was very supernaturally natural. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is, is as I was just walking out life in a very supernaturally natural way, God many times unfolds his plan and allows things to just fall into place. Again, listen, God created nature. God created the natural order of how things unfold and he works in the midst of those things and he's involved in everyday affairs. And I say that because when we're trying to decide things or find out how we should go about things, trying to determine if or how God may be leading, yes, you should pray. Absolutely, you should pray. You should seek godly counsel. You should read God's word. But making decisions by operating in practical wisdom or observation is not an indication that it's less spiritual. It's not an indication. God will often work and accomplish extraordinary things in very ordinary ways and sometimes believers i think can even miss opportunities to serve jesus miss opportunities to honor the lord because we don't realize jesus can and will work in very ordinary ways and we hyper spiritualize things and we sit around and we miss what god's doing sometimes and we miss an opportunity again when jesus washed the disciples feet in john chapter 13 how utterly practical is that? They're all sitting there and all the disciples are looking around the room going, man, it stinks in here and everybody's feet are dirty. And Jesus realizes, hmm, something needs to be done that's practical. Nobody else thinks that they're humble enough to wash feet. I guess I'll start washing feet. See, a lot of times ministry is just paying attention to what's practical. A lot of times the ways of God is utilizing and paying attention to what's practical. Perhaps this morning you're trying to discern what the Lord would have you to do. Maybe you're trying to discern where the Lord's directing or how to go about something in your life. Look, as you pray and you process things, don't overlook being very practical sometimes. 
For example, what works? Where is the Lord leading? What would God have me to do? Well, what would work? What would work? Oh, I'm just, well, I'm really struggling and, and it just doesn't seem that you know, enough funds are coming in. What should I do? Get a job. <laughs> Pray about it and apply a few places until you get a job. I don't know if we should do this or that. Well, can you afford it? If you can afford it, that's probably the leading of the Lord. And, and a lot of times it's a matter of what works. I, lo- I love this. That John, where should we baptize? John baptized there because there was much water there. It was just very practical, but yet God's Spirit was leading and directing everything that was happening. Look, verse 25, our story goes on. It says, And then there arose a dispute, an argument between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So prior to the time of John the Baptist's ministry, as a preparatory way to get people ready, the Jewish people had already participated in what we might call ceremonial washings. They already did things that were parts of, in a sense, purification rituals. The Jews had these purification pools called mikvahs. They were large stone baths or pools that the Jews would utilize for ceremonially cleansing when they desired to purify themselves to be right with God. And so this was something that was already in practice, this symbolic aspect of purification with dipping themselves in water. And it's likely that the religious Jews, out of jealousy and sort of a competitive spirit, as John the Baptist's ministry had been taking place, in their resistance probably began this dispute with some of John's disciples because he had been conducting a water baptism. And and you can hear the argument, something along, why do you think it's so necessary that you need to do a water baptism? We have our mikvahs. We already have purification rituals where people are dipping themselves in water and then you can sense almost as the jab or the insult as the dispute got a little bit more tense, something along this line and we can tell because of the next verse that we read, they probably said something and by the way, you know that Rabbi Jesus, he seems to be the hottest thing now and all of a sudden seems like your numbers and more people are going to Jesus to get baptized than you. So what do you think about that? If your master's so big, then how come now Jesus is baptizing more people than he is? Well, look at verse 26. It seems that might have been one of the things said because it says they came to John, his disciples, and said, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you've testified. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So John's disciples come expressing concern as his followers and disciples because Jesus is, if you would, following and baptism seems to be growing now and it seems maybe their numbers are decreasing and they say, Rabbi, are you aware? Remember that man Jesus that you baptized and then after baptizing him, you publicly endorsed him. You, you even gave him the start to his ministry and really helped him get going and, and he's baptizing now too and, and not only that, his... His numbers are increasing and ours are decreasing. Do you see what they Everybody's coming to him now. All are coming to him. You can hear sort of the typical competitive human spirit, the territorial attitude. Basically, they're saying, wait a minute. We started before they did. What's this? And now they're growing faster than us. They're all coming to him now. What are we going to do? They're all coming to him now. Well, Look, as they're beginning to feel insecure and offended by Jesus' ministry and baptism growing and gaining momentum, look how John answers their concern now in verse 27 to 30. And he answers so wisely and so properly. 
And the things that are said here speak the truth into this situation. And John's answer gives a lot of valuable lessons for our own lives. Look with me in verses 27 through 30. It says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it isn't given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I already said to you, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Savior, but I have just been sent before him. He who is the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, John says, but I must decrease. Notice four things Let me draw to your attention that as John answers, give us, I think, really valuable lessons for every one of our lives. The first one is seen there in verse 27, and that's this, if you're you know, a note-taker person, that, that personal exaltation or promotion, or, or we could say success and prosperity, that all comes from God. Personal exaltation and promotion, success and prosperity in one's life, it comes from God. Look what he says in verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Even as John was raised up by God to serve in a ministry to prepare people for Jesus as the coming Messiah, John realized that Jesus, now living as a man, had a ministry that he was to fulfill as well. And because of that, God, with his endorsement from heaven, was now exalting and honoring Jesus' life and ministry in this season. And the following of Jesus was happening because God was causing it to happen. Because heaven was endorsing Jesus, and all that Jesus was receiving in accordance with his followers was a part of the will and the plan of God. And that's what leads John in verse 27 to state this spiritual principle that is universal and true, quite frankly, for all of us, that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Which means this, if another person experiences exaltation or success in some way, as hard as it is for us sometimes, we really should not be jealous. It's really not the right response, or we shouldn't despise their success or exaltation. We should accept what God is doing. And we should simply be respectful and, and reverent of the fact that God is in control and even somewhat thankful that God knows what's best and we can let go of that. Now, in the same way, if we experience some measure of prosperity or promotion, maybe you get the lift, maybe you get the promotion, you get the position, if we experience some blessing or success in our life in any form or fashion, we should never wrongly interpret that as if somehow we've acquired or earned that because we're so much more special than the others around us. Because that's not healthy. We should realize it's from God alone, it's by His grace and His decision, it's for His purposes. And he in his grace and love has given to us everything we experience has been received from our Father. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you indeed received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? See, the Bible says every good thing that we have and possess has all been received from the Lord. Your talents and your abilities. Do you know why you're talented in that way? Because you receive that talent from the Lord. Do you know why you have the ability to do what you do mentally or, you know, or athletically or professionally or spiritually? Do you know why you have that ability? Because you received it 
from the Lord. It was a gift from the Lord. Do you know why you have the opportunity that you have right now or the experiences you're enjoying? Because you received that opportunity from the Lord. The relationships that you have in your life, do you know why you have that relationship? Because you received it from the Lord. Because the Lord chose to give it as a gift to you. Do you know why you have the resources that you have, whatever they may be? Because you received them from the Lord. And so he says, what makes us differ from any other What do we have that we did not receive? If indeed we've received it from heaven, we should never boast as if that wasn't the case. We should recognize and remember and that should keep us from being boastful and being careful in that area. That we keep a humble, appreciative heart and that we continually deflect the glory, ladies and gentlemen, where the glory belongs. That like Paul the Apostle, we would say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But it's by the grace of God. And like Paul said in Romans 15 where he spoke of the ministry, fruit, and success in his life as a man, he said, it's what Christ has accomplished through me. And such an important thing. So the first thing we see is that any personal success, promotion, exaltation, it comes from God. The second thing we see in verse 28 is this, is that it's important in life to know who and what we're not, but also to realize who and what we are. It's important to realize who and what we're not but also to humbly accept and be who and what you are. Look what he says, verse 28. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have just been sent before him. Now, we've already discussed multiple times because John the Baptist has made this statement many times before that John declined to be the Messiah and reiterated this awareness again and again that he was just sent to talk about the Messiah, to point people and testify of Jesus as the Christ. So John knew what he was not. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not a savior. I'm, I'm, I'm not what Jesus is. But he also was aware and humbly accepted who he was. He knew that he was the forerunner to Christ. He knew that he had a ministry to point people to Jesus, to be that light that would testify of him. And again, as John knew what he was not, but he also accepted and knew what he was, both of those things are important for a healthy life that exalts and honors Jesus. It is important to humbly keep a reality check and admit and know who and what you're not. To know what you're not. And to be humbly aware and realize that we all have limitations as a person and to know what you're not and to accept that to come to realize you know i i know what but i also know what i'm not i'm not that and i other people are that or other people have that ability or that position or, but that's not what i am nobody is everything and to know what we're not is an important thing because we should never try and take the role or place of something or someone that we're not and push beyond what god's intended for us Remember when Saul wanted to send David out to fight Goliath and he tried to put his armor on David and David was all encumbered and it was too heavy and he just, he couldn't function right because David was a shepherd boy and and David wasn't someone who could wear the, so he said, look, I can't wear this armor. This isn't who I am. Give me a sling and a stone. That's who I am. I'm a shepherd boy. And David knew what he was not. And when we try and push beyond what we're supposed to be, it only leads to pride and arrogance and wrongly exalting ourselves in an unhealthy way. Now, in the same way you come to terms with and accept comfortably what you're not, I think that's important. I know what I'm not. This may be what somebody else is at this stage of life. Sometimes it's a stage of life. 
Let me before I let me say this too. Be careful. Don't try and push beyond something if that's not the stage of life you're in. Families do this sometimes. Listen, what stage are you in? You got little ones? You're not going to be what somebody is who's got teenage and adult children. That's not what you are. Be what you are now. It's okay. Be where you're at. Don't try and be what you're not yet. Just let the pace unfold in your life. Now, it's also important to accept and comfortably and confidently know what the Lord's called you to do and to humbly be who you are. John knew who he was. He said, I'm not the Messiah, but I know that I have a responsibility. I know that I do have a role. It's to testify of him. And for us, we need to comfortably and confidently know who and what God has called us to be. And we should not fail in any way to, if you would, embrace and be everything that the Lord has called you to be and called you to do. Whether it's because of false humility, oh, I don't want people to think I'm proud, so I'm just, you know, I'm nothing. About it. No. Just be who you are. Be, realize who you are. Accept by God's grace who you are. It's not pride or arrogance. Just comfortably, confidently be who you are in the Lord and don't let false humility or unfaithfulness keep you from rising up and fulfilling your God-given calling because that will lead to the most glory being given to Jesus. Colossians 3 says it this way, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So know what you're not, but know who you are. The third thing we see in verse 29 is John shows us here from his own life and for our lives that one of the greatest sources of joy and fulfillment is helping connect other people to Jesus. One of the greatest sources of joy and fulfillment is helping connect other people to Jesus. John says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John says, therefore, this joy of mine is now being fulfilled. Again, look, John saw his role sort of symbolically of serving and helping people get connected to Jesus. He saw himself, if you would, kind of as like a best man in a wedding. That's the language here. The friend of the bridegroom. He saw himself as a best man assisting in the wedding, assisting the groom, helping him with his duties to become prepared and fulfill the union relationship with his bride. And we know this. Once the groom and the bride are joined together, the role of the best man is finished. The best man then steps back and steps out of the way and does nothing other than celebrate and be happy and rejoice that the bride and the groom are now unified and joined together. And John's greatest joy was to see people connect to Jesus relationally and then to step back. He never wanted to stand in the way or interfere or have people overly attached to him. He just simply wanted to help in the process to the extent he was supposed to, to see people and Jesus be connected to one another and then just step out of the way as quickly as possible so there was not an over-attachment to him. He just wanted to transition out of the way and let people go forward with Jesus. And that's why he says in verse 29 there, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled now. Because Jesus is beginning to receive his bride. And again, one of the greatest sources of joy and fulfillment for us as well is when you get to be used in a way to help somebody else connect to Jesus. 
whether it's in the salvation experience where you share Christ and you lead somebody to the Lord and then you step out of the way, or even as a Christian in ongoing relationships maybe with other Christians where you help people just sort of turn back to the Lord or get reconnected to the Lord, but you do such in a way in humility and sensitivity that you don't let them to become overtached to you but that you just find the joy and satisfaction of, wow, I shared with them in a way whereby they just turned back to the Lord. They took the hand of Jesus and they, they went walking with the Lord. And to do that is a very fulfilling and wonderful thing. The fourth and final thing we see from John's answer here that I think is a great lesson for us, we find in verse 30, and that's this, that it is the will and plan of God for there to be more and more of Jesus and less and less of us. Here's this great statement John makes, verse 30. It's a great memory verse. It's short. You can do it. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's saying, I must fade into the background, but more focus and attention has to go upon Jesus, John's saying. One translation renders that, he must become greater and I must become less. And for John, that was a literal reality as a part of God's plan with his ministry that the ministry of John now was transitioning, his preparatory ministry was to fade off the scene and things were to be turned over now to Jesus and his public ministry as the Messiah and as the Savior. And Jesus as a leader and a teacher now had to increase in his superiority and in his influence and his importance and John's influence had to decrease in order for that to properly happen. Because if not, John would have stood in the way of Jesus having his proper place of superiority and his proper place of attention. But this also was true, I believe, thoroughly in John's heart and mind. That's why he declares it. Because he just knew it what was spiritually right as a man. He just knew in his heart, this is what's right. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. I'll tell you, that is a spiritual principle that should govern all of our lives. That should be our desire and our pursuit that there would be more of Jesus in my life and less and less of me. Less and less of who I am. In my conduct and behavior, that in the way that I behave, that people would see more of Christ and it will be less of the way that I would behave or the way that I would conduct myself in my human flesh, that in my speech, in my way of speaking, that people would hear more of Jesus speaking forth and the spirit of Jesus through me speaking forth what he would want to say or how he would want to respond rather than my words or my thoughts, that my speech would be more directed by Christ, whether it's ruling within us, that Jesus would be more enthroned over my heart and that I would continually be dethroned and that I would continue to find the rulership that I want to have over my life dethroned and that I would continue to enthrone the rulership of Jesus, that my thoughts and the way that I see things and how I think about them, that it would be the way that Jesus would think about things more and less the way that I, as Tony, would think about things, that the way that I see people would be the way that Jesus sees people and less the way that I, I see people in my own human observation. My attention and my focus, boy, that's a big one, that there would be less focus on myself and there would be more focus on Jesus. 
that I would focus less on me and my wants and desires and needs and that I would focus more on Jesus and that other people's focus and attention would be less on me and it would be more on Jesus. And I think as a Christian, that should always be our heart, whether it's our conduct in the world, whether it's our behavior in the church, that we would never want to do something to draw attention to ourselves, but that we want to draw attention to Jesus, that the focus would be upon him. So again, him increasing, us decreasing. Second Corinthians 4 says, we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Hey, take note of this. Success in some senses in the spiritual life in some ways will be measured by this, by the diminishing of self and by the increasing of Christ. Hmm, how am I doing spiritually? Well, one way to measure that is the diminishing of self and the increase of Jesus, that the life of Jesus within us would become increasingly more evident. And the Bible says this is a must for the Father of Christ. It says here, he must increase i must decrease great opportunity this morning in this text evaluate your life is that the experience right now it's a good opportunity to evaluate lord is that true does it seem that you're increasing and i'm decreasing because that's the must for the follower of christ now wanting to further exalt jesus and give even more attention to his importance john further speaks in a way now to sort of decrease his human importance and to elevate the importance of Jesus. Look at verse 31, he goes on. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth, where he who comes from heaven is above all. So John humbly indicates there his own inferiority in comparison to Jesus now. John's saying in verse 31, as a man, he says, I'm of the earth, I'm earthly. In other words, John's saying, I'm just human. So because of that, he's saying, what I speak comes from a man, just like every other man on this earth. Yet Jesus, he says, though he's a man, he's unlike any man who's ever lived. He's different, John is saying. You notice in verse 31, he repeats two times, Jesus comes from above or heaven. He says, therefore, he is above all because Jesus is man and God simultaneously. He is God who became man, took a second nature, divinity taking upon himself humanity. Because of who Jesus is, Jesus is the greatest man who ever lived. He is the greatest man who has ever existed on this earth and he therefore is above all because he's the God-man. He's God living as man, Lord of all, so he's far superior to any and all men because he's the perfect man. And I think for us this morning, it's good for us to note, as the Bible gives us this verse, God's will and intention, whether in our church or whether in all of our personal lives, is that Jesus, he says it two times there, is above all. That Jesus is above all. That's God's will. That's God's intention. Considering who Jesus is, good evaluation, does he hold that place in your life? Is Jesus above all others? In your life, he should be. Is Jesus above all other things in your life? Your aspirations, your pursuits, your desires, your time, your devotion? 
Is Jesus above all those other things? Does he have first place? He should be because of who he is. John goes on, verse 32, to say, And what he has seen and heard, that's Jesus, he testifies. And no one receives his testimony, but he who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. So John indicates that Jesus' words, he says there, were the very words of God, and therefore Jesus' words should carry more weight or value than anything we listen to. Notice, what Jesus has seen in heaven, it says, he testifies of. Again, what John's saying to us is Jesus came from heaven. So if Jesus came from heaven, first-hand experience, it would make sense that whatever he says about heaven and hell and everything spiritual and eternal, that's first-hand testimony. It's first-hand witness. And so because of that, as a first-hand witness, there's more reliability and dependability on the testimony of Jesus than anybody else in human existence. That's why he says in verse 34 there, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit, he says, by measure. In other words, unlike all the other prophets of God who came before, who a measure of the spirit of God rested upon them as they spoke forth for God, he says, unlike any of those men, Jesus himself was conceived by the Holy Spirit, had the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2 says all the fullness of the God had dwelt in Jesus bodily. He was the Spirit of God embodied, the full embodiment of God's Spirit because he was God dwelling among us. So whatever he spoke literally was God himself speaking firsthand. It was God himself in first person speaking the very words of God. That's why Jesus says in chapter 6 of John's gospel, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The very words of Jesus were divine. They were life-giving. They were powerful in their authority and their effect. And I want you to think about this. Read the gospel accounts. Did you ever notice, unlike any other man, Jesus has spoken words all he had to do was speak the word and he would alter creation. There would be a horrible storm and Jesus would say, be quiet. It stopped. Jesus would speak the words and created things of the natural order would just submit and change. Jesus would speak the word to someone who was blind or lame or crippled and say, get up. And instantly the, the molecules and the, you know, the, the dysfunction in the body humanly, of the, it would just come back together and it would all come back together and bloop, a paralyzed person would stand up and walk because his words were divine and the authority behind them. To me, the greatest indication of the power of Jesus' words is how it would alter a person's life. Because Jesus would walk by and he would see a person like Levi sitting at the tax booth who everybody hated and who he, I tell you this, probably hated himself more than anybody else because he was miserable, because he knew he wasn't in the place of his life where he's supposed to be. And Jesus would look at him and he wouldn't give him a song and a dance and, well, I know why you're like that. You know, you dug your own hole. Jesus would just look at him and say, follow me. And in two words, this man who was miserable himself and had made a mess of his life and everyone else was frustrated with the, two words. Jesus would just look at him and say, follow me. And he'd leave everything. And he'd get up and he'd follow him and his life was revolutionized. Because Jesus 
when he speaks as God speaking for now not everyone receives the testimony of Jesus words John says that and that's sad but the good news he says verse 33 whoever does receive his testimony has certified that God is true that is they realize this is the very words of God Jesus' words are important they're authoritative and Jesus' words have not changed and Jesus has not changed and so we should give proper place and authority to the importance of the words of Jesus and when Jesus says anything when we read the words of Jesus we should submit to and respect whatever Jesus says and give priority and allegiance to what Jesus has said on every subject over the counsel and opinion of anyone else over our own ideas or thoughts Oh, I feel very strongly about this, or I have this idea, or everybody else does this. Listen, if Jesus said it, that settles it. It's the final word. It's the final authority because of who he is that said it. So whether it's on life or death or marriage or heaven or hell, if Jesus said it, that settles it. We should give authority and proper place to his words as we respond to them. John says, verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things, notice, into his hand. So the father has entrusted all power and authority to Jesus to rule as Lord. He has given, it says, all things, verse 35, into Jesus' hand. One translation says, he has given all authority over everything. What this is telling us is the father in heaven chose and decided to entrust and endow Jesus with all of heaven's authority to fulfill the purposes of God. In John chapter 5, we read this. Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that we should all honor the Son just as we honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if the Father in heaven decided to honor Jesus with this role and the authority of giving him the role of lordship, it makes sense to me that we should then respect and submit to the decision that the Father in heaven has made and how we relate to Jesus. That we should relate to him as Lord because that's what the Father in heaven wants. That's what the Father in heaven has determined. And so I should humbly respect and reverently give authority to Jesus' lordship over my life because the Father has given everything into his hand. Hey, this morning, by way of application for your own life, ask yourself this question. Have you put all things in your life into his hand, into Jesus' hand? The Father's put all things into his hand. It's already settled in his mind. But as a personal individual, look at your life. Have you put all things in your life into his hand to rule over his Lord and say, Lord, I'm taking my hands off. I'm putting this into your hand. Or do you, like I do as well at times, try and keep taking matters back into your own hands? and ruling and manipulating and, 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 and making it happen and pushing the buttons. Let the hand of the Lord Jesus direct what happens in your life. Put it in Jesus' hand. Let him direct and decide the matters of your life. I tell you, if we let go and let Jesus be lured the way that he's intended to properly, it all works out a whole lot better anyway. Because then he'll hold on to and keep and protect what he wants for you and what he doesn't want for you, he'll toss it out real quick. It's a much safer way to live to trust his lordship. John concludes verse 36 saying, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. 
And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains upon him. Now, as I said, this basically is just a, a reiteration, a summary verse of really the first 21 verses and the truths Jesus spoke about in that part of the chapter, that because of the supremacy of Jesus, because of who Jesus is as the Son of God and the Savior and the Lord, John restates this eternal reality showing that everything hinges upon belief in Jesus. That that is the one determining factor. How we personally relate to Jesus determines our eternal destiny. And John reminds us again, even as Jesus had already said in the first 21 verses, that the wrath of God legitimately is already resting upon all of us because of our sin. That is, the the, uh, punishment has already been determined what we deserve for our sin justly, but the sentence hasn't been carried out. It's not carried out until after we die. But we're under the wrath of God. We deserve judgment and and the punishment of hell for our sin to perish. And it's only believing in Jesus and what he has accomplished that can remove that punishment. That can remove that sentence from us having to face it being carried out against us. To refuse to believe in Jesus properly is to choose to remain under the wrath of God. It's a choice to remain under God's wrath when all we need to do is believe in Jesus and believe upon what he's done for us and the wrath of God in that sentence is removed from our lives and we receive eternal life and the opportunity to know that we'll be with our Lord in heaven. You know, Perhaps today is a moment to respond as we close out our service by enthroning Jesus in your heart. And you know what that means. To make Jesus again have the place in your life that he's supposed to have where you choose to put him above all. Let's stand together. Let's pray.